Hello and welcome to another episode of Cranky Talk, a show for avgeeks and non-avgeeks alike. We continue to tackle everything happening in the aviation world in the time of COVID. And today, we're going to talk about the weird world of airline network planning. Specifically, how the heck do airlines choose where they'll fly and, to keep it on topic, how does the COVID pandemic change things? But first, I want to thank this week's Cranky Talk sponsor, Turbulence Forecast. Almost every flight experiences turbulence, but did you know you can find out exactly how bumpy your flight will be? even before you get on the plane? Visit TurbulenceForecast.com to view turbulence maps for routes everywhere in the world. This free-to-use site provides access to the same maps pilots use, plus helpful explanations on how to interpret them. TurbulenceForecast.com also offers a concierge forecast by email service from the founder of the website. Place your order before your flight, and you'll receive a personalized forecast by email that details what turbulence to expect during your entire route. Exciting updates are rolling out later this year, including all new enhanced maps and an upgrade to our forecast by email service. So be sure to join our mailing list to be the first to know when those features are available. Check it out today at turbulenceforecast.com. Over the years, I've had plenty of people ask just how airlines decide where to fly. Even the least interested person in the world, like Dave. Hello still cares if an airline is starting a new route to somewhere they want to go. Uh, this is true. I do care about something. Uh, <laughs> good job, Brett. Uh, but seriously, this is finally an interesting topic for me. Um, how do airlines decide where they want to fly, and how can I get them to fly where I want to go? Well, Dave, the answer to the second part is you can't, so stop trying. But for the first part, they actually get together once a year and play pin the tail on the route map. Thanks for tuning into this week's show. All right, all right, just kidding. In reality, they gather airports in a room once a year and make them sing for service. The best singers get the most service. You should hear Orlando. Very good. I'm never going to pay you a compliment ever again. Ah, good. Glad you've learned your lesson. But hey, those are good questions. And I don't know all the answers, despite what you may believe. Um, I do believe that uh, you don't know all the answers. Not what I said. That's fine. Anyway, I spoke with some former airline planning folks and consultants to learn some of their tricks. So airlines have big, dedicated teams that pour over data to figure out where, when, and how often to fly. They'll look at historical data from public and private sources to try to find opportunities, and they rely on airports to help communicate regional changes that might impact travel demand. If you're like 99% of the world, this sounds terribly boring. But for avgeeks around the world, this is a dream job. And the data is just one piece of the puzzle. Being able to tie the data to things that are happening in the real world, that's gold. This takes some detective work. One former planner told me that they would even go visit a city and not tell anyone they were coming. Can we just pause here for a second to talk about how airline sure. planners are um, going around like secret agents? Yeah, man. Except that you can see them with, like, their pocket protectors. <laughs> no shade to the airline planners. <laughs> they, they can appreciate it. They're fine. But look, so what they do, they go to these cities, not tell anyone, then they drive around at rush hour, and they look for traffic patterns. If there were multiple airports in a city, this actually helps determine which one is the best to serve for them. It's also a way to gauge the economic health of the city. If they go to a place and find no rush hour, uh, that's that's not a good sign. Meanwhile, while they're in town, they do something that seems completely crazy. They talk to people. 
I'm told restaurants are the best spots to strike up a conversation with locals to get a sense of how they felt their city was doing. I'll call this the optimism index. A lot of people feeling bullish about their city's prospects points network planners to a happy place. This sounds highly unscientific. You're saying I just need to hang out at diners in Long Beach and tell people how great everything is? I mean, sure, you, you go try that whenever we're allowed into restaurants again and let me know how it goes. Mm. Mm-hmm. But there are other techniques planners use that may seem a little less squishy here, Dave. So for example, a city with a lot of construction going on is likely to mean growing demand for air travel. But how do you judge construction? Uh, planners can literally go and count the number of cranes dotting the skyline. Or maybe a little easier, look up construction permits. But in some cases, it's even easier than that. Sometimes the construction comes to them. Down on the Florida Panhandle, for instance, the St. Joe Company built a giant master plan development that even included land for what today is called Northwest Florida Beaches Airport. When it opened in 2010, they guaranteed Southwest a bunch of money if they'd start service. Southwest did, and now American, Delta, and United have moved in as well since the completed community has actual demand for flights. Great. I'll be right back. I'm going to go file a building permit for some giant community here in Long Beach that I'll never build, uh, so maybe I can get that flight to Seattle back once JetBlue leaves. Okay, well, good luck with that. Uh, in the meantime, I'll just keep blathering on. See, planners don't have to do all of this on their own, fortunately. Smart airports can help feed the right information to the airlines, and the airlines really appreciate that as long as it's good information. The problem is when airports aren't great at this game and give useless information. For example, I'm told airports always give airlines a list of the top employers in the area. But just because Bubkiss State University has a lot of employees doesn't mean they actually travel anywhere. Airlines are used to having to do a lot of the legwork on their own. They figure out which companies travel and then they track their suppliers, their customers, bankers, basically anyone who will need to fly in or out of town and figure out where they're coming from or going to. Airlines have been doing this for a long time, so you'd think that they'd have everything running like clockwork by now, but they still can't plan for the unpredictable. One of my favorite examples is in Williston, North Dakota. Williston was a tiny town that wouldn't register interest from any airline. But then the fracking boom happened. Williston became the epicenter of the oil industry in that area, and workers flocked to and from the town. The old Slowland Field, I think I'm saying that right, uh, the old airport, had a tiny terminal that was built in 2006. But when United and Delta both announced service in 2012, they had to roll in trailers to handle the volume. Eventually, the town gave up and built a whole new Williston Basin Airport to handle the demand. All right, I'm back. My permits are filed. Did you uh, say something about fracking? Yeah, yeah, don't worry about it. I'm just going to start drilling for oil under your house. Uh, hold on now, what? Anyway, airlines aren't always quick to figure these things out. And that's when airports start playing the subsidy game. Airlines will look at some markets and find them marginal. They might work, but the projections aren't good enough to take a swing until the airport steps in and offers up incentives to change their minds. Do you think Delta just decided on its own that Indianapolis needed a flight to Paris? No way. In the first year it operated, the airport guaranteed Delta $55 a passenger up to $3.5 million. Airlines don't usually try routes they know will fail after the subsidy dries up. The idea is to try routes that they think have a chance. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. But if the downside risk is gone, then airlines are more willing to try it. Uh, hey, can I borrow some money? Why? I'm, uh, I'm going to put together a subsidy program to get those Long Beach to Seattle flights back if my permit plan fails. 
Ah, then no. Anyway, what's really interesting now is how much technology can play a role. Airlines and airports can, for example, work with cell phone data, find out how often people are driving from one city to another city's airport. This kind of leakage is something airports love to use in their efforts to get new flights and prove that demand exists. In the old days, the best they could do was survey travelers and then go and count out-of-state license plates in competitor parking lots. All right, this is getting long and you still haven't talked about COVID. I mean, you haven't even been here for half of this thing. But fine, fine, let's get to it. (laughs) COVID has made life miserable for airlines. With demand disappearing overnight, there's no historical data that helps here. After all, the last time we had a global pandemic 100 years ago, there was barely any air service that existed anywhere in the world. Uh, Real quick, how old were you 100 years ago when the uh, last pandemic hit? All right, millennial, calm down. (laughs) So uh, what have airlines been doing? Oh, a good question. All right, good. Well, they have all approached this differently. See, in the very beginning, it was just an all-out scramble. Flights were empty, airlines were bleeding money, they just canceled close to departure to bring capacity down and cut costs. But over time, strategies began to develop. These strategies are more about figuring out what to cut, not like in normal times when the question is what should be added. The numbers illustrate the point more starkly. Thanks to DO by Sirium, I was able to look at airline schedules from last July as compared to this July. Last year, the four biggest airlines in the world in terms of number of flights were in the U.S. American topped the list with more than 208,000 departures that month. But this July, it's flying only 107,000. And that's actually pretty high compared to others, believe it or not. American's been more bullish about demand coming back, so it has kept flight levels higher with a focus on its Dallas-Fort Worth and Charlotte hubs. At the other end of the spectrum, we find United, which had 159,000 flights last year, but this year it's only running 54,000. United and Delta are both far more conservative than American has been. Different airline strategies mean some airports have fared better than others. Last July, Chicago O'Hare had the most departures in the U.S. with 40,000. This year, American's aggressiveness has vaulted Dallas-Fort Worth to number one, but it has only 20,000 departures. Maybe more interesting is that Denver and L.A. were virtually tied for the same number of departures last year. This year, however, Denver's running about 16,000, while L.A. has a mere 10,000. Being in the middle of the country, Denver's seen demand drop less, especially since it is largely focused on domestic flying, unlike L.A., which has such a large international network. Okay, great. So can I get my Seattle flight back now? I mean, I have no idea what routes will make sense now, but I'm going to say probably not. Airlines haven't had good data since this mess began, but each month that goes by means there's at least something further to consider. Future bookings are being monitored closely, and schedule tweaking has been happening closer and closer to departure. It used to be airlines would try to finalize schedules about 100 days before travel. Now it's maybe a month, if that. One consultant told me it's now a multi-part process. Airlines need to monitor just what is open in each destination, and airports can help keep them updated with that. Then they'll need to look at how cities and regions are handling health and safety. How will they market to get people back? It's a rebuilding process, and the level of service that returns will depend upon how well that process goes. For travelers, this means that booking flights is a guessing game, and you can listen to a previous episode of Cranky Talk for more on that. You can just assume that what you book isn't what you'll actually be flying unless you're doing it close to departure. Eventually this will calm down, but we're far from out of the woods. In the meantime, Airline planners are burning the midnight oil to figure out where to fly those airplanes, just like they always do.
Thanks for tuning in to Cranky Talk. We'll be back with more deep dives and helpful tips for these turbulent times. Before we finish up, I want to again thank this week's Cranky Talk sponsor, Turbulence Forecast. Almost every flight you take has turbulence, but wouldn't you like to know how much there will be and when it will happen? Check out TurbulenceForecast.com for worldwide turbulence maps, interpretations, and a concierge forecast by email service. You can receive a personalized turbulence forecast before your flight from the founder of the website. That's TurbulenceForecast.com. And if you'd like to be a sponsor, let us know. Email Dave directly at Dave at CrankyConcierge.com. If you have suggestions for what you'd like us to cover in a future show, let us know via email at info at CrankyConcierge.com. Or you can find us on Twitter or Facebook at Cranky Concierge. If you're looking for the top daily airline news stories, you can subscribe to Cranky Daily at crankydaily.com.